My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? I felt I had no mind. I felt something else was controlling, controlling me. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, is next on Larry King Weekend. And then you got mixed up with some people. Yeah, I got uh, involved and. and um, it was a, a very long process. It was a, a very long process, and uh, this kind of a cultish group, or I guess you, I guess you can say what that. You, what, what mistake did you make? What, what didn't you see that you should have seen? Uh, danger. Uh, was this a group of people? Yeah. At this time, I had made a pact with the devil. I had allowed this satanic thing to control me and i felt these paranormal powers i know that sounds uh so hard to understand you know but I felt that i had this power and i was unknown to me i was slowly being led down a path of, of, of destruction did it give you a high in other words what was the plus for you there has to be a plus what did you get out of it nothing Nothing. So you were not happy when you were doing this? No, no. I, I just felt like a brainwashed robot. A brainwashed robot. I really? Felt, yeah. What is that like? I just like felt I had no mind. I felt something else was controlling, controlling me. Uh, and you, you took it through a dog? No, no. That was what was that? A, that was just... Uh, I'd rather not talk about that. That was just a... No, I'm not going to pressure you, but there were pressures on you. Yeah, sure, there were You were pressures. hearing from sources outside of yourself. Not in that psychological way, but uh, it was, it was a, a satanic thing. Times Square, a nightcrawler creeps to the pulsing, droning beat of a plastic stereo aluminum hypnotic metronome, pumping a steady, thick chance medley like a viscid fog set aglow with multiplex LCD screens that dress the brutalist monoliths, clustered colossal skyscrapers penetrating the marred pavement and piercing choking smog, flashing screens of inebriating images of lust, treasure, violence, and pleasure. 
flickering at a seizure-inducing rate, projecting shimmers and shadows across scummy puddles of muck, the lurid ejaculate of incestuous, copulating metropolis, a dilated abscess on the vile face of the American megalopolis, an underbelly of our unslayed dragon, whose keepers fester in an atmosphere of death and ritual murder, whose aim is to make us the actors in their Masonic theater, subjects in their satanic petri dish, and slaves in their soul prison. Our guest today, a traveler of the psychic highway, and an occult gumshoe who's cataloged the cryptocracy's crimes and culture of divine corruption in his seminal works, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, Twilight Language. Not only is Michael Hoffman here to discuss these books, He's also here to help us break this hex that's been cast upon us. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Michael Hoffman. I want to avoid the Hollywood images of the devil and things like that. I, I, I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about uh, a power which relates to the Thelemites, the law of Thelema, the utopianism which is fed to people, the forms of mind control, and still within a Christian framework. But as Anton LaVey said, uh, Satan is the best friend the church ever had. In terms of what he was mocking was the dramatization of Satan into almost a co-equivalent of God equal to him, rather than being someone that is sub uh, subliminal, is subjected to God and not uh, equal to God. But so that satanic cult, Maury sort of, I feel, went a little bit too far out on that. And that's what the fourth episode is about. But one, two, and even three are worthwhile. And I think they pound the final nail into that coffin of the idea that Berkowitz was alone. And there are interviews with Berkowitz, uh, I believe in Attica prison and perhaps some other prison that he was transferred to. And Berkowitz cooperates to a certain degree. Berkowitz had to be wary about how far he was going and implicating his co-conspirators in the Son of Sam. And uh, one of the interesting things that was brought out that I only had a little bit of inkling of was that snuff films were being made, which were fairly big in the 70s and commanded high prices. And at least one of the shootings, it was recorded and then sold on the snuff film market. And by market, I mean a very narrow, esoteric group of people, somewhat similar to what Jeffrey Epstein was running with his child molestation network. It certainly wasn't a public thing or easily accessible by the internet. So yes, the thing about Berkowitz that was most interesting to me was the letter which he did not write and doesn't even appear in his handwriting, even though it's been re reproduced widely in the media, was his famous letter to Jimmy Breslin, where, and again, it wasn't him, so I should say it's the Son of Sam letter, where in a very haunting and poetic manner with someone who has composed, who has command of the English language, hello from the cracks and crevices of New York City, where dog manure and saliva mixed with blood. I mean, it was at that level of intellectual discourse and in there, this son of Sam killer signs himself by two very mysterious names, John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. Well, that set my antenna to buzzing because no girls were raped and suffocated in the son of Sam killings. And the second one was uh, Wicked King Wicker. And as you know, 
the famous Wicker Man movie and book, Anthony Schaefer and his co-author there, and a rather striking connection or resemblance to Burning Man in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. And so here set me off on researching the basis of the word, uh, the etymology of the word wicker, which I would say if I had to distill it down to a couple of words would be the bending of reality. You just heard an excerpt from today's conversation with Michael Hoffman, former reporter for the New York Bureau of the Associated Press, a graduate of New York University Oswego, and author of several books dealing in many banned topics. Mr. Hoffman investigates political and occult crime by decoding what he calls twilight language. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mystic Mark. Be sure to follow us on Telegram and leave us a message. Tell us why your family thinks you're crazy. Now, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Michael Hoffman. I'd like to start off, if you will, as far back as you're willing to go. No, as a young man, I I understand you, you had a professor that sort of made you question things and inspired you to look in your own backyard. That's something that I've taken up in a similar way. I live in Connecticut near New Haven, and I've had this sort of tangential experience with Yale as a delivery guy delivering through their different facilities and buildings. And, you know, I've met some strange people that have told me some things about skull and bones. So it's very inspiring. I'm wondering, you know. You know anyone who got inside the tombs? Well, the building? I've seen people moving in and out, but I've never spoken to someone who's been inside, no. Um, the main person that I've spoken to actually moved from Arizona to New Haven in protest of a Geronimo's skull being taken from his grave in Oklahoma. So I've spent a great deal of time thinking about that subject. I'm sure I'll ask you about that organization towards the latter half of the conversation. But yeah, like I said, it's a true pleasure to have you here. But if you could get started now, I'd love to know, you know, when this interest really began. Was it a childhood interest? Did it start in college? You know, where the first the first moment that that you realized something in the world was was not quite as it seemed? I was more or less always interested because my mother from about the age of four years old, and I can still visualize the paperback from the 1950s. It was the Tales of Mystery and Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe when she started reading it to me at age four and five. Many years later, I asked her why she was a Poe fan. And she said, I was never a Poe fan. Something told me to pick up the book and start reading it to you. So, you know, and since that time, I've made a little bit of a study of Edgar Allan Poe and been less interested in the Poe killing pedagogy, which goes on in the high schools where they teach the telltale heart and the pit and the pendulum, which insofar as they're suspenseful short stories are certainly worthwhile for reading on that basis. But Poe is so much deeper than that. And my my pillar for that is quite often the cask of Amontillado, which is his signature anti-Masonic story. And those are things that interested me a great deal. At the same time as a child growing up in the 1950s, 
I remember a, a Catholic girl by the name of Maria invited me to a, a dance at the local uh, country club. And it was on a Friday night at the same time Twilight Zone was on. And I turned her down. <laughs> I had to watch Twilight Zone. But I became not necessarily friendly with Mr. Serling, but I did get to know him. And he lived on the psychic highway, the 42nd degree of North Parallel Latitude that I talk about in my book, Twilight Language. He had a summer home there on Cayuga Lake where our family had a cottage. I, I pulled my first lake trout out of Cayuga Lake. So Mr. Surly and I had a, something in common. And he was a baseball fan. We had a local farm club. The Cincinnati Reds had a farm club in our town. Mr. Serling attended that. And then I did have an opportunity to uh, sit down with him for a couple of hours in the 1970s. And one of the first things I asked him was, do you believe in witches, flying saucers, ghosts? And he told me with a straight face that he believed in all of it. He was a very fine uh, man. I noticed that he was chain-smoking Doral cigarettes. I still remember that. And that's what eventually contributed to the heart disease that killed him. He died at Rochester General Hospital. From there, I popped in and out of various colleges in the 1970s, Hobart College, where Francis J.M. O'Laughlin had an influence on me, and especially at the State University of New York at Oswego, where Faiz Abu-Jabber was professor of political science, which is what I was majoring in at that time. And I had these highfalutin ideas about writing the history of the French Revolution and things about the different aspects of the Anglican monarchy of England. And he grabbed a hold of me one day and he said, Hoffman, he said, why are you not concerned with writing about what's in your own backyard? Why are you looking to all these other areas where you don't necessarily have the ability to do the spade work necessary to write a good history? And I said, what are you talking about? And he handed me his own monograph. This was a Palestinian American, handed me his own monograph. And it was on the Masonic murder of uh, William Morgan in 1826. It was kind of thin, it was eight pages, but I give him complete credit for even looking into that because establishment historiography has claimed in line with Hofstetter's notion that this is all the paranoid style in American politics. And that's how they write off any notion that there's a secret society that might commit a crime as if that's impossible. But he overcame the Hofstetter thing, which was a huge trend in the 60s and 70s. And I can't believe that it remains influential in our time. And so from there, I did start digging because that was my backyard. Again, the 42nd degree of North Parallel Latitude, known as the Psychic Highway or the Burned Over District. And that's where the anti-Masonic movement got started after Morgan was kidnapped from the Ontario County Jail and then drowned in Fort Niagara River by Freemasons. And many luminaries of American history sustained that fact, including ex-president John Quincy Adams, as well as Thurlow Weed, who was part of Abraham Lincoln's kitchen cabinet, and Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state, William Seward, actually won office Initially, his very first office that he won to the Albany legislature was on the anti-Masonic ticket. So Lincoln's administration was replete with anti-Masons. Also on the 42nd degree, besides this enormous movement of anti-Masonry, I would call it the most significant ever in the entire West, Western Europe and the United States. And then also you had the uh, Mormon movement was founded on the 42nd degree line of North Parallel Latitude. Feminism was founded in Seneca Falls. 
Again, the psychic highway, as historians refer to it, 42nd degree, and spiritualism, which isn't much known today, but was uh, a oncoming religion of uh, sort of like what popped up in the New Age and the hippie movement and and may or may not be forgotten today, but that was enormous. The Fox sisters and Lincoln's wife held a seance in the White House and many important people in the 19th century were swept away by that idea. So in addition to what I learned from my mentor, James Shelby Downard, about the 32nd and 33rd degrees of North Parallel Latitude, I also developed my own interest in the 42nd degree And that's extensively discussed in the book, Twilight Language. Right, right. And people hearing that may not associate the Erie Canal with the 42nd degree of parallel, but the Erie Canal also has that same sort of name, right? The Psychic Highway has been given to the Erie Canal. It's interesting, you you know, spiritualism, you mentioned it's sort of a dying thing. There are still... Uh, small, small groups of spiritualists that hold meetings. My sister actually in high school was invited by a friend to a, a spiritualist meeting and she gave me the book and said, Mark, what do you think about this? And I'm like, they're summoning ghosts, Rachel. You don't need to be involved with this, <laughs> you know, sort of pass it off. But, you know, you bring up somebody who I've been talking about a lot lately because King Kill 33 is absolutely fascinating. But tell us, about James Shelby Downard and when, when you met him, when you came into contact with him, and, and uh, for those who may not know about him, who he was. Yeah, James Shelby Downard first came to the public in Adam Parfrey's 1987 book, Apocalypse Culture. And uh, I wrote an introduction to that, and then Shelby and I collaborated on that uh, manuscript. I met him in St. Petersburg, Florida in the mid-1970s. He was very much a man of the South and particularly the American Southwest. You wouldn't ever find him up in your neck of the woods or mine, Connecticut or New York. He just wasn't that kind of person. He was very sensitive to the spirit of place. That was another factor. The one time I know he moved north was into the Pacific Northwest, but he didn't stay long up here, which is where I am now. And uh, he went back down uh, to the Southwest. But yes, he was in St. Petersburg at that time. He always took an Airstream trailer to different trailer parks, even though he was from a wealthy family. But that's how he traveled because he was nomadic. And he asked me after we got to know each other and had collaborated and we hit it off. He asked me, uh, he sent me an enormous cardboard box with his Xeroxes. He, He must have kept Kinko's copy, if you remember that company in business for his copying. And that's how he printed his manuscripts. So it was an enormous box of his files on King Kill 33. Although he didn't call it that, that was the title I gave it. And uh, he asked me to turn it into uh, a small book, which I was honored to be able to collaborate with him. And the result was uh, King Kill 33. But this was a man that he had a vision for uh, what he called mystical toponymy, which is seeing the interconnections between name places in the American Southwest, for example, and the Kennedy assassination. Things like Ruby Road and the Trace Hermanus Mountains, Johnson Road and Kennedy Road, all slightly by degrees or minutes north or south of the 33rd degree of North Parallel Latitude. And to the best of my knowledge. He was the first one to have this wondrous vision of the world in terms of the spirit of place. In atomic physics, 
It's called Time Relations Among Events Are Assumed to Be First Constituted by the Specific Physical Relations Obtaining Between Them. And this was talked about in the Camelot mythos, the once and future king, the idea that time and place influence each other. And that may seem prosaic, but in the hands of James Shelby Downard, he opened up a world of wonder by suggesting that what happens on these particular electrifying places is part of this large ritual for imprinting the mind of the masses, because very much like Charles Fort, the epistemologist, he was concerned with what is the effect of the Kennedy assassination on the American people, where they, many of them were no longer the same, and how were they changed? And I think most of the change was negative and remains so uh, to this day, culminating in what I call the gateway of the 2001 Blackjack Gateway, which I uh, wrote about in Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. And then 20 years later, I picked up on it again for 2021. Yeah, and, and you know, for those who don't know, you mentioned James Shelby Downard being from a wealthy family. I found it absolutely fascinating that his father was a crucial part of the paving of the American roadways. You know, his father was a, a company, I think his company had to do with asphalt, you know, creating asphalt. And, you know, it's absolutely fascinating considering, you know, he was a traveler connecting all of these roads in this psychic highway. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. Well, I wonder now, you know, given the sort of the history that we have, you know, we're told that in Europe, the churches would practice building in pagan sites and, you know, the pagans built in whoever came before them and so on and so forth. I've had past guests discuss the Masons being the primary sort of progenitors for this practice in the United States. Is that concurrent with your research? Would you say it all falls on the Masons, this sort of real occult understanding of the landscape magic? I wouldn't put it all on the Freemasons, but I would say that a large part of it was. And of course, when you're talking about masonry, we need to distinguish between the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. And in America, it's largely been the Scottish Rite, which has been the most powerful and the most dominant emanating on the 33rd degree line in Charleston, South Carolina, as led by the infamous Albert Pike, the Confederate general, who then more or less deified the uh, Dog Star Seer, which was, as you know, a black-headed jackal from which I get and others get the blackjack notion about 21 initiated on September 11th, uh, 2001. But yes, they had this vision, which wasn't supposed to be common to the rest of us ordinary mortals. And that's another significant aspect of Mr. Downard, who was virulently opposed to Freemasonry and, and, and openly called it sorcery. That's, that's what he referred to. He felt this was very negative. I mean, because we can have an open-ended vision of the earth and of mystical toponymy, as he called it, but we can use it for negative or positive purposes, obviously. And so even when you look at some of the Anglican, well, originally Catholic and now Anglican churches of Great Britain, some of my research colleagues in Great Britain have used if you believe in dowsing, have doused for ley lines in these churches and seen that in the 1970s, Anglican priests were doing certain types of ceremonies in different corners of the church that corresponded to ley lines that were intersecting there. And so what I would 
I would prefer to say is that there's this barely visible grid. In fact, it's it's invisible except to our intuition and whatever empirical data we can gather on it. The old straight track, as Alfred Watkins called it, there, there was some empirical research there. And what I would say is, is that enlarges our vision, but it fits into the idea that Mr. Downard pioneered that there were these this ceremonial magic, which involved the ritual sacrifice of human beings, including coordinating with Sir James Fraser's uh, book about the killing of the king, and that Kennedy, in his eroticism, in his fornications, in no one really in the presidency has shimmered like John F. Kennedy and his consort, Jackie. And, you know, they landed, for example, on the when he had his appointment with Destiny in Dealey Plaza, the Masonic uh, Square in Dallas, he landed in Love Field and he was on board the Angel Plane. And we can begin to see pieces of a puzzle fitting together, which are a type of language they're speaking to us. And one of my concerns is, is that this language, instead of empowering us, and instead of uh, getting us going on what we need to do in terms of bringing the perpetrators of these various crimes to justice has actually kind of burned us out. And that's why I've been concerned with the society of the spectacle, as Guy Debord talked about, and what effect this monopoly control of guiding our vision, pretending that these killings, serial murders and so forth, are simply in the domain of criminology and not in the domain of the occult. Yet at the same time, underneath, we have the the definite sense that something more is at work here than simply a madman, a lone nut who went wild, whether it was in in Texas at the same time as you had the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's supposed to be about the Manson killings. And here at the Cielo shopping mall in Texas, these killings took place in 2019. And of course, where was Sharon Tate murdered on Cielo Drive? So you have the the killings in 1969, and now you have a twilight language word connected to a mass killing in 2019. And what was showing at the mall at that time when these killings were going on? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the movie. And so these are some of the connections that Mr. Downard and others have taught me to take a look at. Right. And I will mention in our intro that we record after the interview that you spent a number of years at the New York's Associated Press. So you have a very firsthand you know, experience with not just uh, one or two of these high profile cases, but a variety of different cases. I mean, some I've heard you talk about and read that you've written about, I mean, the Unabomber case in particular, I found it fascinating that you actually spoke with Mr. Kaczynski. And to your point that I've heard you make several times, I think a lot of conspiracy theorists take liberty with these ideas to the extent that it disempowers the audience and even themselves. So I would love to, you know, have you speak to that point because this is the place for that. I named the podcast. My family thinks I'm crazy because it's a true statement. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And, and it's good to be able to back up these theories with actual facts. And as a journalist, you've gone to great lengths to actually dig up firsthand sources, which is something that 
people, unfortunately, in the conspiracy community are just not doing. They're, they're taking second and third hand sources and weaving them together in this pastiche that fits their perspective, but it's not close to the truth. So there is a lot of primary work that you've done that I'd like to, to highlight here. Yeah, well, in the case of Ted Kaczynski, I was I, I never spoke with him directly. He signaled to me through his jail cell that because I was holding a sign in front of the jail where he was held in the local Helena, Montana, before the feds actually transported him to a federal holding center. And uh, that's where I was able to communicate with him through that window. Ted overwhelmingly, Dr. Ted Kaczynski, who was a subject of LSD experimentation at Harvard University, and as Manson was at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in San Francisco in his, his lost years, as they're called, in O'Neill's book, Chaos, which I recommend, in 67 and 68. I mean, Manson was basically a redneck fresh out of five years on Terminal Island, and all of a sudden he becomes the hippie king and, and, you know, and, and had all the moves down. Sure, he was a con man, but there was a lot more in terms of the grooming. And I believe Ted Kaczynski was groomed at Harvard University with the LSD and then, of course, he had a Ph.D. in mathematics, but he lived in the scapegoat wilderness. He dined at the scapegoat cafe. He was a scapegoat. And I don't think it was within his power or volition, let's put it that way, to step outside of that. And so he turned himself over to a federal appointed defense attorney who's working for the feds. Later on, when they weren't drugging him as intense, intensively as they had done in his pretrial imprisonment, he did ask for a radical attorney out of San Francisco, but it was after the fact. It was ex post facto when he made that request. And the thing about Dr. Kaczynski that I discovered by talking to, and this is just a couple of days after he was arrested, the people in Lincoln where he lived before they got processed and told what they believe by the media telling them what they should believe about Kaczynski. They had already known him, but years and years of that have worn those people down. Some of the actual eyewitnesses that I spoke with and interviewed at the time. And uh, they said he was a wonderful man, kind and decent to their children. He did tutoring free of charge. And uh, also I will add this for the record. The FBI never looked for accomplices. They never searched for accomplices of Kaczynski. And it's my opinion that Ted Kaczynski was shepherded. I don't believe he did all of the university and airline bomber or Unabomber, again, a twilight language word minted by the federal government to describe his Luddite anti-technology violence, which some of which he was guilty of and which I condemn. But at the same time, the FBI, in my opinion, was in there shepherding this, watching it, monitoring it, and never concerned about accomplices. Now, in my days with the Associated Press as a crime reporter and talking with many detectives, getting to know uh, policemen, the case only really begins at the time the perpetrator is arrested in terms of searching for accomplices. Now you know where he resided, you look in the neighborhood, you look at any sympathizers that come around. He was uh, he had some ties to the University of uh, Montana at Missoula in Missoula, Montana, and case closed on the day he's arrested. Same thing happened with Berkowitz. Right. Here he is, you know, Newsweek had him on the cover. There's son of Sam, you know, a few days after he was arrested. 
And any honest detective has got to shake his head and say, this is a charade. That was, by the way, one of Mr. Downard's favorite words he used to go around saying when I would bring up different things like this to him, he would say, ah, cult charade. That's what he would say. And that's, that's what these things are. Well, and on the point of the son of Sam, a cult charade, can we go into detail on that? Because many people uh, falsely believe that he was a single perpetrator of that, but you've shown evidence for the contrary in your book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. And also, I would recommend the uh, documentary series that appeared on Netflix uh, last summer, Sons, The Sons of Sam, plural, especially uh, the second program. The first one recaps basically the case. The second one, more or less, in my opinion, provides strong evidence that Berkowitz was not alone, and he certainly wasn't the only shooter. For libel reasons, they had to avoid mentioning the female shooter. It's pretty obvious who that was, but other family members were directly mentioned there. And then uh, I think it was a four-part series, and then uh, the fourth one is largely concerned with the deterioration of Maury Terry, with whom I collaborated He wrote the book, The Ultimate Evil. And the last part of that, he goes off on a tangent. I think he was fed misinformation by the system because a lot of his early work was so good on the idea of a Manson II and some really, in my opinion, far-fetched connections between the Son of Sam cult, the satanic cult. When I say satanic, I want to avoid the Hollywood images of the devil and things like that. I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about... Uh, a power which relates to the Thelemites, the law of Thelema, the utopianism, which is fed to people, the forms of mind control, and still within a Christian framework. But as Anton LaVey said, uh, Satan is the best friend the church ever had. In terms of what he was mocking was the dramatization of Satan into almost a co-equivalent of God equal to him, rather than being someone that is subliminal, is subjected to God and not uh, equal to God. But so that satanic cult, Maury sort of I feel went a little bit too far out on that. And that's what the fourth episode is about. But one, two, and even three are worthwhile. And I think they pound the final nail into that coffin of the idea that Berkowitz was alone. And there are interviews with Berkowitz, uh, I believe in Attica prison and perhaps some other prison that he was transferred to. And Berkowitz cooperates to a certain degree, but I think he's under the same type of intimidation that Charles Manson was is that Manson never wanted to be known as a snitch for obvious reasons when you're incarcerated, because that's the worst thing you can be. And I think he prided himself on the fact that he never did turn his co-conspirators who were very high level in the utterly corrupt Los Angeles district attorney's office. And again, O'Neill's book chaos brings this out. And so Berkowitz had to be wary about how far he was going in implicating his co-conspirators in the son of Sam. And uh, one of the interesting things that was brought out that I only had a little bit of inkling of was that snuff films were being made, which were fairly big in the 70s and commanded high prices. And at least one of the shootings, it was recorded and then sold on the snuff film market. And by market, I mean a very narrow, esoteric group of people somewhat similar to what Jeffrey Epstein was running with his child molestation network. It certainly wasn't a public thing or easily accessible by the internet. So yes, the thing about Berkowitz that was most interesting to me was 
the letter which he did not write and doesn't even appear in his handwriting, even though it's been reproduced widely in the media, was his famous letter to Jimmy Breslin, where, and again, it wasn't him, so I should say it's the Son of Sam letter, where in a very haunting and poetic manner with someone who has composed, who has command of the English language, hello from the cracks and crevices of New York City, where dog manure and saliva mixed with blood. I mean, it was at that level of intellectual discourse. And in there, this son of Sam killer signs himself by two very mysterious names, John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. Well, that set my antenna to buzzing because no girls were raped and suffocated in the Son of Sam killings. And the second one was uh, Wicked King Wicker. And as you know, the famous Wicker Man movie and book, Anthony Schaefer and his co-author there, and a rather striking connection or resemblance to Burning Man in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. And so here set me off on researching the basis of the word, uh, the etymology of the word wicker, which I would say if I had to distill it down to a couple of words would be the bending of reality. That that's one of the, and you can find that in the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language, the bending of reality. And then in Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, I go more into wicker man onomatology in twilight language I'm concerned with some other forms of it, especially Moab and things like that. So, yeah, Berkowitz and Son of Sam are, are a high-level part of this. these serial murders that are intended to process human beings as part of an open-air quasi-Masonic ceremony. I always quote Antonin Artaud, the author of The Theater of Cruelty, who said, in the late 1940s, there will soon be a civic magic that will appear undisguised. And the fact of the matter is that it long ago appeared undisguised. And the problem with the head is, is that the majority of Americans have been processed as initiates. And they're masons on site. I'll, I'll read something, if you, if you will indulge me, from page 27 of Twilight Language. Awake, so the, a wake-up call presupposes that people are asleep. They are only partly so. In their waking stages, they intuit that the cryptocracy in the United States engages in human sacrifice and occult process. That's my contention, that we realize that these things are going on. And this thrills us, and we keenly anticipate more thrills. And this is where I think that the conspiracy theorist movement does more harm than good, because I consider them to be more voyeurs than anything else. At this stage in history, America is a carnival sideshow thrill dome, and we the people vie for a front row seat. Things like eternal salvation, pursuit of the truth and freedom, all that takes a back seat, despite the rhetoric of the conspiracy theorists. And so the alchemical processing of humanity is ahead of schedule. And as part of that, we become less human, far more numb, and easily misdirected as the reign of dead matter, the reign of the machines appears on the horizon and reality facts and truth become dispensable and sorcery entails a calculus in which reality facts and truth are whatever the sorcerer declares them to be. And I'm sure you've heard in popular culture, the statement, the question is posed, why do you believe this? And the answer is because I choose to believe it. 
Therefore, you know, nothing is true and everything is permitted, as William Burroughs famously made that particular point. And so I'm trying to say to people that too much conspiracy theory without action, without I have to credit the John F. Kennedy conspiracy researchers um, who I mentioned at length in Twilight Language, because I think that they are rather different from some of the others in terms of actually trying to bring to justice some of the killers of President Kennedy. Now, all of those killers, to the best of my knowledge, are all dead. I made an effort to get in contact with Charles Harrelson, who I believe it was one of the three shooters, the father of actor Woody Harrelson, and because he was in prison, and I thought that would be the ultimate coup besides Dorothy Kilgallen going in to see Jack Ruby, and of course she was killed not too long after she got those notes. But I was more than willing to go in and talk to Mr. Harrelson in prison because he would know he would be a direct link to some of these perpetrators. And even if I failed in that, because Woody, when I met with Woody, he, he didn't want to cooperate. But even though I failed in that, I felt that at least I was trying to do what New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison was trying to do. I mean, he actually prosecuted Clay Shaw, who was a CIA agent and perjured himself on the stand and saying that he had never been connected to the CIA. And we see very little of that in the rest of this conspiracy theory movement. We, so much of the conspiracy theory movement that credits an occult role is hypnotized by it and, and becomes part of this society of the spectacle. And I recommend Guy Debord's book this, by that name, as well as Sadie Platt's book, The Most Radical Gesture. She was a, a collaborator of Debord's. And that's where he talks about the fantastic spectacle, which is draining our souls of, of our ability to fight these things. And once you've gotten into the revelation of the method, which is where we are now, where they're showing us, they're revealing to us. I mean, the Son of Sam documentary, and I'm in no way suggesting those who produced it are, are part of a conspiracy. I'm sure they had pure intentions, but that, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. It's part of the revelation of the method where the cryptocracy has profiled us and decided that we're so burned out and we are so now heavily initiated ourselves and double-minded that for the first time in the history of the Western occult imperium, they can show to us what they're doing to us. Why would they do that? Because when we don't act against them as a result of that, we become far more weak. We are weaker and we become victims of this mind control. A victim of mind control doesn't react in a positive and constructive way against those who are controlling them. And so when conspiracy theory becomes entertainment and voyeurism, it's dead. And I think that the vast majority of conspiracy theory today is uh, worse than useless. Of course, there are honorable exceptions to that, but uh, that's my take on it. Very well said. And, you know, I think it's important that we trace back some of these things to their origin. In particular, you, you mentioned dead matter. John D. famously said in one of his predictions, and I, I've seen this relayed in your book, that, you know, humanity would be ruled by dead matter, you know, and, and other words, I'm sure. But we see now, obviously, computers filling the role of dead matter. But 
we had a very less someone I had never been familiar with before your book, Mr. Marlowe, who at that time was making a number of plays to sort of expose what he saw going on all the way back then in the 1500s. And, you know, this term that I seen in your book, the Royal Masonic Theater, you know, we have this going on, whether it's the Son of Sam event, the David Burt, you know, uh, I'm sorry, the you know, Dr. Ted Kaczynski, Unabomber, these are sort of on display for all of the public to induce, as you say, this mass initiation into this occult sort of stupor or, or hallucination. But where does it really go back? Because obviously Marlowe was very concerned all the way back then in the 1500s. Well, I'm very glad that you mentioned Christopher Marlowe. I hope to make him the subject of a book on the, I wrote a book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. I would like to write a book parallel with that, which would be the occult reign of Elizabethan Tudor era. And Marlowe, who, again, during the era of Richard Hofstetter and the paranoid style in American politics, they always bought into the idea, which was pushed by the British Secret Service, who, by the way, are the ones who assassinated him, that he was an atheist and he had died in a barroom brawl. That was the cover story. Actually, he was killed by a known member of the British Secret Service. Ingram Fraser was his name and stabbed through the eye to symbolically connote that Marlowe had seen too much. And I learned from Dame Frances Yates, who I also recommend, even though she has sort of a naive notion about white magic, but nonetheless, in terms of her data, a lot of it is very solid. solid. And I noticed that she focused information on Marlowe's play Tamerlane, which was a real irritant to Elizabeth I, because Tamerlane is shown in Marlowe's play to be a, an, an emp a conquering emperor who is clothed with the sun. And Elizabeth, through Edmund Spencer's poem, The Fairy Queen, was designated Isis. There was this underground occult current to what was otherwise supposed to be a very orthodox, Anglican, Protestant, holy type of reign, which to this day, some gullible Protestants continue to believe that, as gullible Catholics believe it about the papacy. But so Tamerlane really rubbed her wrong. But then in Dr. Faustus, that's where we see D in Marlowe's immortal play, Dr. Faustus. Faustus is just another name for John D, who Shakespeare also starred in one of his plays, the Tempest, where he's the magician on the island. And it's interesting what happens between Prospero, the magician, and Caliban, this half-human black man. He's showing the ritual, the ritual degradation of this black being who's sort of like dehumanized into an animal at the same time as the rise of England's enslavement of black people in Africa. So is this a ritual way of signaling that some type of process before blacks could be kidnapped and sold to the white slavers that they were first ritually degraded in Africa? It's something that I've been looking into in the career of John Hawkins, who was the main slaver that Queen Elizabeth invested in his and his slavery enterprises. But anyhow, so Marlowe in Faustus and in Tamer, Tamerlane, <clears throat> he brings up these. He had to do them veiled, of course, because you couldn't openly criticize <clears throat> a tyrant like uh, Queen Elizabeth I because you would be drawn and quartered. Bloody Mary has the name. She burned Protestants. Actually, blood isn't involved in burning excuse me, it's Elizabeth who should have the name bloody because she reinstituted the horrible death of drawing and quartering for pretty much anyone who rose up and irritated her. One of them was her former friend and the great um, 
Jesuit poet Edmund Campion, who was tortured to death at her behest. She even had her own personal torturer, Richard Cop- Topcliffe. And all these things are missed by people. And so me, why is Marlowe focusing on the demonic nature of John D, the astrologer royal? Uh, well, for one thing, I mean, he's kind of like a palimpsest for what the occult British empire would become because he basically invented it. I mean, he's the one who first used the, the phrase, the British empire, and he united with the geographer Richard Heiklet to create the basis of what became the lines of latitude and longitude, which we're talking about here today in terms of latitude. And all that emanates from the Royal College at the Naval Sanctuary in Great Britain that is called Greenwich, if you're speaking fast, but if you slow it down, it becomes Greenwich. And so they are reverse fertilizing the earth from the center of Greenwich. Meantime, remains, you know, basically the standard time of the globe. Well, who managed to impose that and by what ritual means? And that would be John D. Richard Heiklet and D. with his assistant, Edward Kelly. And of course, Aleister Crowley went off the deep end in many ways in claiming some of this for himself. But, you know, Crowley was half brilliant practitioner, mountain climber, an amazing human being, and part clown and victim of his own sorcery, ultimately, if you look at the way that he ended. Right. So, uh, yes, I would say read Marlowe. Uh, It's beautiful poetry. Some people suggest that Marlowe may have written some of the, or co-wrote some of the early Shakespeare plays, but that's one conspiracy theory I won't wade into. Who wrote the Shakespeare plays? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a deep, deep, deep can of worms there. So, you know, jumping off of what you said about D and, you know, the age of empire really being kicked off by him, it's fascinating, too, that they also created the lines of latitude and longitude on the planet. Because as I was sort of mentioning at the beginning of our conversation, a gentleman who taught me a lot about skull and bones in the area of New Haven one day pointed to a building with a large window all the way at the top, an oval-shaped window with exactly what you would expect lines of longitude and latitude to look like on the globe. And he said, that's the globalist symbol right there. It all started with John D. And this, this mentor I had was really sort of cryptic, so he didn't really give me much more than that. But, you know, given what I've recently learned about Aleister Crowley and his time in Montauk, it very much seemed like, Whatever he was doing in Montauk, and I know uh, Walter Bosley, the author, makes this assertion, it was connected to Tesla and these ley lines that Tesla was trying to connect with through his Wardenclyffe Tower. And then very proximal to all this is Greenwich, Connecticut, the wealthiest sort of area in the United States per capita. And it all shares that similar sort of. So I think you know, why I love having you here so much is you're someone who's inspired so many people to take this mystical toponymy and, and weave it into their own research, almost, you know, to to a point where it makes people seem a, a little schizophrenic when it's not used properly. But but there is so much really to to sort through, you know, the, the coincidences really stack up to the point where you, you just end up saying, wow, this is all synchronizing, you know, but when it comes to Aleister Crowley, you know, have you researched much into what he was doing in, in the United States? Because I've even heard he was down there in Kentucky where James Shelby Downard spent a lot of time. 
I don't know about that. I know that he had a wayward or renegade follower in John Whiteside Parsons or Jack Parsons, as he's known, the rocket uh, fuel scientist who helped to lay the groundwork for the moon flights. And Crowley, at least officially in what he was saying in his exoteric correspondence, was saying that they're mad down there and they're going crazy and they're trying to create Babylon and a homunculus, the, the tiny mannequin that James Shelby Downard believes was irradiated and was inside of the bottle, as it's called, even though it's enormous, that was at ground zero on the 33rd degree line of north parallel latitude at the Trinity site in New Mexico, the land of enchantment where the creation and destruction of primordial matter occurred, i.e., the atomic bomb. No one's ever been able to explain adequately what that jumble capsule was, but that was the suggestion of Mr. Downard. But certainly Jack Parsons was involved in that. And Crowley, I think for me, in terms of epistemology, what interests me is he revived the concept of the Abbey of Thelema, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law or do your own thing, as was the phrase in the hippie era. But actually, as some people have pointed out, like Thomas Molnar, a correspondent of mine, now deceased, a great Hungarian-American uh, philosopher, that uh, it was actually a front for a counter-church with rules and a priesthood more strict and more onerous and repressive than what the Catholic Church was alleged to be involved in at that time. And so I think it's one of the great sucker traps of the 20th and 21st century, the Thelemite movement and Thelema, and as advanced at first by the successor to the Freemasons, because largely Freemasonry has accomplished most of its goals. It's not half as necessary or half as powerful as it once was. But the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, Order of Oriental Templars, has been central in proselytizing for Crowley and for Thelema, going all the way back to Rabelais' book about that. One thing I would like to just uh, refer back to when you talked about that oval window in, in the Yale camp, or and yeah, you know, this is when you're seeing the the symbol of latitude and longitude together. It reminds me of the inevitableism of their script because obviously latitude and longitude are artificially imposed on the earth. Uh, the Mayas or the Incas or the Chinese could have done something similar, and maybe they did, and we don't know about it. So what we're seeing here is a very powerful script being imposed on us. Oh, look, the lines of latitude and longitude. Well, we don't know what their uh, provenance is, but here they are and we use them. So there's the script and then it's made inevitable. It's sort of like they were always here. They always will be here. And that's what the cryptocracy wants to project about itself, that its rule is inevitable and that the script is not actually a script. It's just a brilliant futuristic prognostication, which is bound to come true. And so that's what they sell through science fiction. You're no doubt familiar with the seminal book, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. I mean, that was really seeding the ideas that we're living right now about an apathetic population that isn't even concerned about the fact that Satan in the flesh is walking on the earth. And Clark talks about how that is processed through incrementally processed on the earth. So it's important for us to be aware of how much what we think these brilliant people from tech culture or Mountain View, California, or wherever the centers of the tech tyranny are, as they see their scripts through movies and television and pop culture in general in some very brilliant ways, uh, because they are virtuoso masters in, in many senses. But they're not, they are not infallible. 
They are not omniscient. They are capable of mistakes. I've seen some of the mistakes they've made, but they want to project all of those senses of a divine inevitability. And I think it's important for us to be aware, lest we be drawn into the notion that these science fiction scenarios, which even in terms of design and architecture, which quite often come into play as a result of us believing that these things had to occur. Right. Right. It's it's like the standard of measurement. It's an arbitrary thing until it's widely accepted. And then, yeah, it sort of seeps its way into reality. And I can definitely see that happening with the lines of latitude and longitude. You know, a, a really brilliant sort of researcher into the realms of ley lines who I've had on the show several times, although he would prefer the term geomantic corridor, uh, a man named Mr. Peter Shampoo, he has shown a what he calls a city lay that goes from the pyramids in Mexico through the major cities of the East Coast up through New Haven, Connecticut, Boston, and then down and makes its way through some key points in Asia. But, you know, he makes the, he basically explained that at that time they called it Satan's axes because everything west of it was, you know, uncolonized, left to the Native Americans. And you see this sort of uh, mystical toponymy at play when the colonizers come in, you know, using names of the the tribes and the people that were originally in that area and sort of co-opting them. The state I live in, for example, Connecticut, is a, you know, an Algonquin word meaning long title river and they do this over and over and over again. I mean, the Mohawk were moving up and down the 42nd parallel far before the ships ever set sail for America. But, you know, as far as this sort of alchemization, you talked about the black magician earlier, we see this sort of the phases of alchemy being sort of put on us in waves by the likes of John Dee and such. You know, you have a book out about how White people were enslaved here in the Americas, something that, you know, we probably will get censored for, but we're getting into the, the latter part of the conversation. So we might, you know, we'll be fine. This isn't going on YouTube or anything, but it's it's definitely, you know, given what I've learned from the mentor I've mentioned, who is a Native American, you know, there's sort of an alchemization that's gone on taking the spiritual inheritance from that group of people and passing it on to another yes and by the way if you want to go another 10 minutes i appreciate your line of inquiry here i i, I could go to 80 minutes rather than 70. so i wanted to ask a question is peter shampoo s-h-a-m-p-o-o -O? uh is that how you spell his name it would be more of a french c-h-a-m-p-o-u-x would be how he spell his name okay it's and he's like shampoo got it and he and he's suggesting that this corridor was put into place at what time prior to the westward expansion of the united states or even earlier than that right it was a part of the the process of you know colonizing the east coast the masons who founded new york city philadelphia boston they were very aware of this sort of line and and lined everything up with the pyramids in mexico because john d i mean he had that obsidian scrying mirror, which he could have only gotten from people who had traveled to South America. So they were very well aware of the Mesoamerican culture at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did he write a book on this or Yeah, not? Peter Shampoo has a book out called Gaia Matrix, G-A-I. 
IA Matrix. And yeah, we've had him on the show twice. He's he's out there and on the West Coast as well now, working to rewater the American Southwest. So he he's he's a man on a mission, much like yourself. Well, it, it, the Southwest needs some water. Yeah. Undoubtedly so. But yeah, I think, you know, many people see this sort of really, they're starting to see this woke culture and how insulting it is to the actual demographics they claim to be in support of or have sympathies for. And I think that's certainly true with the Native Americans. I mean, most of them can care less about any sort of, you know, welfare from the government. They just want to be living in the in the same way that they initially were obviously that's probably next to impossible given the amount of modernization that's gone on throughout the globe but you know i wonder since we're sort of winding down i appreciate the extra time you know what do you have in mind when people ask you about like what are we to do about this obviously the cryptocracy is is known about but it's not known about in a way that you know as you said earlier is very productive so how do we start as conspiracy theorists or awakened people if we can reclaim that term how do we start to take back this country and this globe from this cryptocracy that's a good question. And I think it first begins with being more skeptical about the phrase knowledge is power. Knowledge is in a sense power, but the authentic power is in the ability to detect fraud. And so what's happened to those of us who are in this circle of people who are trying to chart and to follow up on occult crime and occult deceptions and manipulation of humanity is we've had difficulty detecting fraud in our own ranks. We fundamentally accept whoever says that they're in agreement with us. And there are so many people inside of the conspiracy theory movement who are either useful idiots and not conscious of the degree to which they're spreading misinformation, or they actually are seeding disinformation in our ranks. And so having the ability to detect fraud is something that you have to hone in your life. And so a lot of my work is based on intuition. It isn't entirely empirical. I do go by certain feelings. I had a friend who was a dowser and he could douse not only ley lines, but pockets of gas underground, water. That's not an entirely empirical pursuit and activity. It also involved his intuition and his mind being in touch with what was going on there under the ground. So there is a, a strong element of that, but I don't think there's enough of a demand for the rules of evidence where indeed they can be applied. For example, in the things that we've been talking about, uh, Son of Sam and Kaczynski and others, that don't, here there you can follow a trail of documents, actions, agents, and so forth. And it has to be done in a scientifically documentary way rather than involving superstition or our own confirmation bias, which we have to militate at all times, basically looking to confirm the preconceived notions that we have about anything. And I find that all the time or a great deal of the time in conspiracy theory, people begin their discovery of history and the occult with an axiom that they have imposed on the data. Well, I'm going to look up to find out why this happened and how it happened. Well, hey, what if it didn't happen the way you think it did? And so for a historian, for especially a revisionist such as myself, we have to challenge ourselves as we go along in these darker areas 
and say, what if it turns out that in this particular point, the establishment is right? Because even a broken clock is correct twice a day. And that's where we have to yield. And if we are yielding to facts that contravene some of our primary theses, we're actually strengthening the appeal of our work to those who care about the truth at that fundamental level that don't have a real partisan investment. And I think that one of the problems today in in 2022 is, is that people are overwhelmed with their own partisanship. And on the left, they talk a lot about the religious fanaticism of the right, not recognizing, like what I pointed out about the Thelemites in the Abbey of Thelema, that, that secularism and notions about scientism, not science, mind you, but the deification of somebody like Dr. Fauci, that becomes scientism. And you have, you can always see a religion, even if it avoids the habiliments of religion and the garments and trappings of religion, because it's too crafty to actually take those on. You can see that when they propound the notion that error has no rights, which runs counter to the founding fathers principle that error does indeed have rights, because who decides what's error and what's truth? Since that's the constant challenge to human beings, let's make sure that people who we regard as being in error have rights, because as history teaches, 100 or 200 years later, some of those errors are proven to be not errors at all. And so that was the wonderful thing that Jefferson injected into the the basic um, outlook of the founding fathers. And so what we have now is a religion of secularism the New York Times is now inserting, not in opinion pieces, but in re, in journalistic articles that are supposed to be objective, impartial reports. Senator so-and-so made this statement. We know this statement to be wrong. And they're making that didactic assertion. And so what you're seeing across the culture, of course, the right wing does it as well, but that's better exposed. So what you're seeing across the culture is this war of two religions. One doesn't have the name and the other one does. And so it becomes a matter for our personal philosophy to follow the truth wherever it leads. And I would just add here the famous line from Charles Fort, uh, founder of Fortean Epistemology. He said, wise men have tried to understand our state of being by grasping at its stars or its arts or its economics. But if there is an underlying oneness of all things, it does not matter where we begin whether with stars or laws of supply and demand or frogs or Napoleon Bonaparte, one measures a circle beginning anywhere. And if we take that with us, and if we're not so high and mighty about our, we don't see ourselves as crusaders, but we see ourselves as sleuths who are humble, both in the face of God's divine creation, as well as in the plethora of these enormous facts, which we're trying to sort out. If we can do that and maintain that, then I think we're beginning to establish a different type of what I would call revisionist occult investigation, which is on a much more solid basis and whereby the Richard Hofstadters of the world can be defeated by the marshalling of facts. And I think one of the main starting points for that is the John F. Kennedy assassination research. And we've mentioned some of the key figures in there, and that continues to be a a fertile ground for investigation. Brilliantly said, and I've heard you quote that before, and I think it's well worth hearing, you know, we, we all have to start from somewhere, but it's important to know that we're all equal in that start, you know, and, and I think that says it far more eloquently than I just did. But, you know, 
going to JFK, I've heard a myriad of theories, and I know this is a topic that can you know easily take up a whole hour's mm-hmm. worth of conversation, but uh, one theory that really always stuck out to me was the was the point about Lee Harvey Oswald being a incredibly patriotic person who was wrapped up as a patsy, and this gentleman, David Ferry, who had a lot to do with it, CIA gun runner, and then Judith Judith Very Baker, who has been on several podcasts, you know, allegedly she is the, you know, ex sort of lover of Lee Harvey Oswald. Have you looked into that theory? Would you put any stock into that? Or are there other JFK theories that you find more uh, worthwhile to, to look into? She must be quite elderly if she was Lee Harvey Oswald's lover. Right. Yes, she is <laughs> um, up there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm leery of anecdotal evidence like that because there's such a huge incentive to latch on to something which is part of the mythic poetry of America because the assassination of President Kennedy has entered into a Camelot type of gnosis. And anyone who can attach their star to that firmament and enjoy some of the light. And we have a celebrity culture. And I'm not in any way disrespecting this lady, but just pointing out that in general, I'm leery of these things because of the celebrity culture and how much people uh, desire to be famous. And then yet we see celebrities who are famous who are miserable, need to go to alcohol and drug counseling, and seems like their lives are a mess. And a great deal of it is due to perhaps their fame. But I'm not, I've never heard that Oswald was a patriotic American. I'm not sure what his motivation was. I definitely believe, I do accept that he was a patsy. I also accept the American standard of jurisprudence that we're innocent until proven guilty. Lee Harvey Oswald was never convicted in a court of law of anything. And also I believe that we need to take a look at the extent to which so many eyewitnesses to multiple uh, shooters, and other anomalous aspects of the case ended up dead under mysterious circumstances, as Jeffrey Epstein did in his jail cell in 2019. And just recently, after Prince Andrew settled for $16 million with Virginia Gouffre, or however you pronounce her name, who was one of the uh, ladies who was molested just a few days after he settled and he was off the hook, she was going to take that to trial. And that would have been a revelation of the method for sure, I think. And then his main procurer or pimp, as it's known in the parlance, Jean-Luc Brunel was also found dead in his high security prison cell in France. And so you look at these types of things, and this is where I believe that we're beyond coincidence now. And we're in the realm of the American people knowing in their hearts and in their subconscious, even if they refuse it in their conscious, that they are ruled by a satanic type power that does not have their best interest, that uses murder and butchery and occasionally pumps up this jingoistic patriotism as we're seeing right now with the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, I condemn what Putin is doing in the Ukraine. It's completely wrong. It's similar to what the Israelis did in Lebanon in 1982 throughout the summer. They're bombing, carpet bombing the city of Beirut. It's all forgotten now and largely forgiven. But here is 
Joe Biden suddenly has a halo on his head talking about the butchery that Putin is a butcher. And this is where I, I go on alert when I hear these things. When we get these two black hats, white hot hats dichotomies set up where, oh, the Russian is evil and Joe Biden, he's not the greatest guy and he's got some dimension things, but by golly, he told the truth when he's, well, wait a minute, Joe Biden is a guy who stands uh, full force for the legalization of abortion up to the eighth and ninth month of pregnancy. Can you imagine being in that uh, abortuary and watching an, an eight or nine pound baby being pulled out of the mother and butchered? So who indeed is the butcher? And how many of the people who are held up to us as the saints and heroes, as opposed to evil Arabs or evil Russians or whatever. I think that that distinction has to be made and that we are, are put on the alert about that. It's a passion of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a, a need for, you know, a real sober look at what's going on. And, you know, you mentioned in the book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, the, the movie Videodrome several times. And I think that is more and more, you know, what we're, living through i mean that was written uh, almost 20 years ago do you still feel that way or do you think there's another movie that's more of an apt comparison at this point i mean some people say idiocracy is a good one at this point with mr biden in office and they also refer to the matrix it's sort of become a bible for them and i see the matrix as an as a kind of inevitable scripting going on mm -hmm. as well right but the video dome process is still in play but I think we've gone beyond it because Videodrome was pre-internet and pre-virtual reality or metaverse, as uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, has dubbed it. And I think that unless you're living as one of the Schwartz and Truber Amish, or you just have the self-discipline to be in downtown Greenwich, Connecticut, or downtown Manhattan, and can still keep yourself disconnected to the extent that you need to be. This right now is the Christian season of Lent, when we're supposed to fast not only from food, but also from the various stimuli with which we are connected throughout the year. Those are all millennial old forms of wisdom that are seldom put forth to us now. And I think if we had a better balance, one might necessar not necessarily have to completely eschew the internet or the videos that are on television, but to keep a good balance, everything in moderation, as the wise people say, is very important. But I think that we're so burned out. The Las Vegas uh, massacre in 2017 continues to haunt me. All we have from it, the FBI is five pages of an investigative summary, five pages on so many of the holes in that official story of what happened there. Those country and Western fans massacred. And sure enough, it was business as usual in Las Vegas. A week later, those people were massacred in front of the Egyptian iconography of one of the hotels there right in front of uh, the various gods of Egypt or their images. And as you know, from my book, Twilight Language, I talk about the little Egypt area in America and all of the place names the mystical toponymy that has occurred there, how it's been set up, Lincoln and Douglas and their fateful debates. Some of those occurred in Cairo, Illinois, or Cairo, as it would be called in Egypt. And so the thing is, is the degree to which this has just become grist for the video drone, just become grist for this 
carnival, sideshow, occult thrill machine where we keep waiting for Hollywood is going to produce the next thrill, the next thrilling movie. And so many of us are deadened by this process. And the only way we feel alive is to be, get, be given an adrenaline shock from the next serial murder or the next weird movie that comes out allegedly claiming to be able to decode all of these various occult cryptograms. And I think that's that's probably the among the most macabre and ominous on this road through the revelation of the method, this yellow brick road to the reign of dead matter, is where are we personally in our own human development? Is evolution actually reversed? Did we begin as angels and now we're being dehumanized and bestialized into a level of the simian, of the level of the ape-like? It seems like that's actually one of the goals of the Rosicrucian fraternity when they were writing in code in the early 17th century, which was a belt of transmission into Freemasonry, which would which would come later. And it seems that that human alchemy, the, even though the New Age believes they take the take on that, that it's all very positive. Well, where is the positivity here? I, I don't see that. I see a cryptocracy, which is using the tools and techniques of alchemy to walk us through a process that makes us less human, less alert, and more people who are looking for the drug of occult entertainment, even while we put a covering on it to say, oh, well, I'm watching this in order to see what the evil powers are doing. Well, some of us have to do that. I, I mean, I, I've gone to wise people who counsel me and say, do you think I should continue with this? Am I going to have bad dreams? And and so far I haven't, thank God. It seems like perhaps possibly I was born to do this work, but not everybody is. Some of us need to steer clear of it. And I think it has become part of this entertainment machine, which is part of the processing. We saw that in the Batman movie where there was a play on the words uh, that were related to the massacre up in your neck of the woods in Connecticut at the schoolyard. And you saw that as well. How did they have that embedded in the movie? And so many other things like that, which are showing us hints of the level of control and the level of evil. And basically we're doing nothing about it. And what you asked me is very important. What do we need to do about it? We need to clear our heads. We need to concentrate on our ability to detect fraud. And then as in any other murder case or any other crime of deception or what have you, we then have to proceed towards a prosecutorial result, a jury trial of their peers, interesting district attorneys in us, or maybe you and I need to be elected as district attorney. But that's along the lines where we should go rather than surrendering to a process and saying it's inevitable and the end is near. The end may be near, but we've had false prophecies, particularly in the late 20th century, Y2K and uh, Harold Camping's prophecy, the Mayan calendar of 2012. You sell enough wolf tickets at the end of that, people get really burned out. You know, I got all excited and it didn't happen. And so as a result of that, a lot of us don't seem to be able to cultivate within us what it takes to continue on this peregrination toward justice. You know, may justice be done, though the heavens may fall. That's inscribed on the tombstone of Jim Garrison, and it ought to be the motto for all of us. Wow. And, you know, there, you do leave us with so much that it's hard to, to come back at you with a question. But I did I did sort of I was reminded of something I wanted to ask you before. And, and that was about 
Kaczynski's writings and how legitimate they actually were because it sort of feels like he hits on a lot of points that we see are very true with this liberal establishment and all the things that they're doing that you know children of the elite and so on but then this response to go off the grid and you mentioned y2k my girlfriend and i just watched a documentary last night where in the you know the explanation for why these people went off the grid it was the Y2K thing, which we both know was really silly in hindsight. I was much too young to realize what was going on then. But do you think that there is some sort of um, manipulated effort to get people to go off grid? Is that somehow, because it seems like a lot of conspiracy theorists would tell us that they're trying to keep us all in smart cities, you know, the opposite of, of what Kaczynski was sort of suggesting with his writings as well. Yeah, of course, we were all off the grid before 1890. You know, it's like all drugs, all drugs were legal before 1910. And America didn't go down the hole. In fact, in many ways, it was uh, a more productive society than it is now. I'm here in the North Idaho area. And about, you know, every one out of 10, or I don't quite know what the statistic is, is a prepper and they're living off the grid. And increasingly, that's what North Idaho has become. I even, some of my children even have that status. But, you know, I was out in Maui and on the Hana side, which is largely undeveloped, and they've kept development out of there. And folks who don't have any investment in what you and I are talking about today, they have solar power and, you know, they've got their own gravity fed wells and things like that. I think that's just practical shoe leather common sense for anyone. But I do agree what we're seeing is smart cities and, you know, your house, your house can be turned on or off with your cell phone, right? The locks on your home and everything. Well, you know, a hacker can do that too. We already know their CIA research into how to drive a smart car, like a robotic type of advanced Tesla car off a cliff. And it would be one of the great ways to assassinate someone because it'd probably be very difficult to find physical traces of how that murder took place. So it's all out there and it's all a challenge to us. And the challenge might seem psychically overwhelming. And I think that's what we need to resist because I don't believe that God gives us any challenge without giving us the grace to overcome it. And some people are selling us this, it's all over, you know, don't have any more children because it's futile and we're going to burn up. So the next false prophecy is Ocasio-Cortez saying that within 12 years, and she said this last year, the world would end due to global warming. Now, global warming is a serious concern, and I'm not denying that for a minute. But when you get people setting dates like that, and then you look at, and maybe she herself is, is just a useful idiot when it comes to this. And then you see people giving up on having children. That's the most fundamental type of collective suicide that anyone can do. It means that you have no faith in the future whatsoever. And yet what's paradoxical is some of the same people who are doing that are enthusiasts for an open border with Mexico. And I don't understand then if you are environmental activists and if you had children, you would educate them in the environment and safeguarding it and being a steward of the earth as God commanded us to be in Genesis, if it's properly understood. Why would you then forego having children and open the floodgates to many people who through no fault of their own are desperate just to make a living in America, including if that involves burning fossil fuels or cutting down trees or whatever? 
It doesn't make sense. And again, you look to see what hidden hand of manipulation is behind that. But we can have a vibrant future. We, we can write our own script. We can defeat the cryptocracy. In every generation, there have been prophets and saints from Francis of Assisi, Savonarola, and many others like them. And to a certain degree, I think, although he was no saint and he was no prophet, but I think to a certain degree, John F. Kennedy was killed because as in the book, JFK and the Unspeakable, he was going to forego the Vietnam War, which is when in the planning stages. And it's interesting that now Lyndon Johnson on PBS has emerged as a kind of saint and prophet, the man who had a strong hand in the assassination of his predecessor, because of his role in the civil rights movement, his genocide in Vietnam and taking hundreds of thousands of American youth through that hamburger grinder in Vietnam, and also in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, what did that do to the psyche of America? That's forgiven now as well. You know, we have certain war crimes by certain favored nations that can be committed and there's no ukraine type of concern mounted there so we begin to see the double mind that's being imposed on us and scripture says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and we have a very unstable population of people who continue to be targeted and seem to lose more and more of their will and desire to overcome and to create a vibrant future for their children and grandchildren. And we have learned from the Native Americans who we are told, I don't know how true it is, but we are told lived and and committed actions that were based on how it would affect the next seven generations. And we're told the Chinese think that far out. And it seems like Americans, not because there's anything inherently evil about us or anything, but because of this massive processing alchemically and in other ways, we don't we our short sightedness doesn't extend beyond the next election. And that's going to create quite a problem if you're not heavily invested in a future for children and grandchildren. If you can't have children, help those who are having them and, and try to educate them in a way that you think will be enlightened and helpful to the earth. There will always be children on the earth. It's just of what quality and by what direction they will go. Beautifully said. And and I think it's a message that my audience definitely needs to hear and it's been such an honor to get it from you sir and i think that the the prophets of the new age are going to be you know not the new age but this new you know age whatever it is we're heading towards is going to come through podcasting in some way you know i feel the oral tradition of man really being revived through this medium and the fact that it is so open source people can you know basically get started with this without really any you know limitations as far as someone else telling you, oh, you can't talk about that. Or so it's been truly an honor talking about How, this. May thing. I just, may I just yeah. interrupt for a second here? How do you avoid deplatforming and censorship? I'd be interested to know. Yeah. Well, as far as, you know, podcasting goes, the RSS feed is a decentralized way, just in the sense that it goes to so many different platforms that let's say Apple and Spotify, they say they don't like my show. They can go ahead and take it off, but my RSS feed will still be picked up by other apps, you know, such as CastBox, Player FM, and all the rest. The other way that I avoid censorship is by publishing my videos to Rockfin as opposed to YouTube. Uh, Rockfin is sort of a more exclusive network, but I, I'm sort of in the know with my, my boss, Sam, works with them so we can certainly have a conversation about that afterwards if you're interested in in putting this type of content out mr hoffman i'd be delighted to to give you advice but 
for the audience who may be hearing you just for the first time, can you please tell us where to go? Obviously, I encourage everyone to pick up Twilight Language and Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, two books that I own and really enjoy, have enjoyed reading through the past few months. Mr. Hoffman, where can they go to, to follow up with more of your work? Oh, thank you for asking. So on Twitter, it's at Hoffman Michael A. And uh, on the web, it's www.revisionisthistory.org. Beautiful. Right on. Well, this has been such a fantastic conversation, a true honor. And thank you folks for tuning in. Please go support Mr. Hoffman and find out all the information he has to share because there's a lot more than what we talked about today. I hope you're able to join me again one day, sir, and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and what an epic conversation with Mr. Hoffman. I mean, I spent a good part of this year reading his book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. There's a lot of buildup. It's interesting, my friend Michael Wan, the first time I ever met him, he showed me this book and suggested that I read it. It took me long enough to buy it and then it took me even longer to read it so give yourself some forgiveness out there folks practice forgiveness reading can be a challenge but challenges are fun especially when you develop the skills necessary to take it to the next level speaking of next levels i have his book twilight language which i plan on reading next and if all goes well as planned we'll have him back on to go in depth further on that book and whatever else comes to mind. I, I sort of mentioned the skull and bones thing at the beginning, and I'm not sure if I revisited at, it at any point during our conversation, but it was a true honor. Michael Hoffman has received a lot of flack from the typical crowd of people who want to discredit conspiracy theorists. And of course, anytime a conspiracy theory rubs up against one group or ethnicity or race which you can do that in a very extremist and radical and hateful way and i don't think michael hoffman is in that camp and unfortunately the folks who are in that camp give the rest of us a very bad name i was a little nervous for that reason given his reputation and very surprised not not very surprised but very pleased to see that Michael Hoffman is a very sober, rational, and uh, well-meaning person who has a devout faith in God, and and he puts a lot of hard work and in, into his research. And if you like what he talks about, go over to revisionisthistory.com. He's got all of his books for sale. There's a lot more than what you can find on Amazon. Like I said in the intro, his books have been banned off Amazon. Several different books that he's written have been banned off of Amazon. So the only way to get them are through his website. Go over to revisionisthistory.com and support Mr. Hoffman. It was a pleasure talking to him. And I think based on how the conversation went, we might be able to have him back on a second time. He was very strict. He said, you have to read my book before we talk. So... I did my best. I made it almost 90% through the book, skimming in some parts, but it was a great read, very captivating. I enjoyed reading it. And I think his book, 
his thesis, his hypothesis, and his style has been reproduced and regurgitated by a lot of the sort of more contemporary sources for this type of information. And in some ways, that's a great thing. You know, all art is stolen. And I think there are many examples of synchro mystic researchers who take the subject and apply it in a very productive and meaningful way. There are also people who approach it from a radical extremist point of view, and maybe they miss really what this is all about. I've come to this subject from a place of caring about the world and wanting to see a change. You know, at first I realized that those changes were maybe a sort of not grounded in a real common sense view of the world. So I went out and I tried to establish that. And what I saw was that the mass media and everything we're being told about the earth is a lie. And the real conspiracies are far more interesting and hardly ever talked about. So that's why we're here having this conversation on this podcast. And that's why I do the podcast I do, not because I'm some know-it-all who knows everything. I'd hate to think that you guys think I know everything. Jeez, my family thinks I'm crazy. If I was a know-it-all, I certainly would have a better reputation with them, don't you think? But anyways, speaking of family, I got to meet a really good friend recently. My buddy Alex Stein traveled out to New York City to be on a podcast called In Hot Water with Gino Bisconti and Aaron Berg. And uh, I had the honor of being able to sit in and, and hang out in the studio and we went down to a bar and had a drink. Gino bought us shots and met some interesting characters in the bar. And then Alex and I went down to Times Square where we did some man on the street videos. Very interesting stuff. And uh, that was definitely part of my inspiration for the beginning of this episode with the intro, you know, painting the, the scene of what New York was like in the 70s and almost blending it to what it is now in a sort of more extreme, exaggerated, sort of graphic way. And there's a lot of truth there. You know, I've spent a lot of time in New York City, and I think there's a lot of great things to be said about it. And there's also a lot of very dark, unsettling things about New York City and really any city. It doesn't matter if it's in the United States or anywhere else in the globe. I think every city has its underbelly, but here in the United States, it almost feels manufactured to be that way purposefully. I don't know. Just my jaded thoughts. Who am I? My family thinks I'm crazy after all. Gotta give a big shout out, a big, big shout out to our latest patrons. I'm gonna give you guys spirit animal names in um, the next episode. Not this one. Very sorry about that. I know I said I was going to do it in the last episode, but you know, things happen. Moving from one studio to another. I hope you can excuse the sound. I'm going to have to get with somebody who can help me tune this mixer into the room that I'm in now. Changing up living situations. I have my own apartment now. It's a beautiful place, nice and spacious. Now that it's spacious, there's some room noise that we have to deal with and all the other 
things that come with living in a new environment and moving all your audio equipment. So bear with me. I hope this doesn't sound too different from what you're used to, but things are always improving on this podcast. And I think it's pretty cool to see the eras of the podcast. You know, we, we have like the first 50 episodes would be the era when I had my friends on the show. I did a couple episodes as a solo host, but for the most part, I was joined by a co-host for the majority of the first 50 episodes of the podcast. And then I started to break away and, and play with the new format, me as a solo host and sort of gritting my teeth and, and learning the skills necessary to hang in there with brilliant researchers, pro podcasters, hilarious comedians, and everyone in between. We've had a lot of really interesting conversations. I think the past 50 episodes or so, from episode 100 to episode 150 with David Icke, which, by the way, highest downloads ever. We hit a huge, huge record this past month of March, almost 70,000 downloads for the podcast in that month alone. So amazing. So glad that you are all here with me on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Please do stick around because we've got a lot of amazing guests coming up in store. But yeah, the episode 100 to 150, really, I think we hit our stride. And when I look at the sort of statistics, the charts for where we've been at, it, we've been sort of on an upward trajectory. February having, you know, less days than January, we kind of, we didn't do as good as we did in January, which disappointed me, but March was 20,000 downloads above what we got in February. So fantastic, very cool stuff. I'm glad to see the podcast is growing and more and more people are finding it. We even were on the top 30, number 24 on iTunes in the United States in the philosophy category. So, wow, what an achievement. I am so happy with what we've done so far. And this is just the start, you know? I, I think some of my favorite podcasts are in the hundreds of hundreds of episodes, you know, Grimerica, Tinfoil Hat, Higher Side Chats, they're all past their 500th episode. And, you know, after we hit that 150 milestone, maybe we'll do something cool for episode 200, 300, and 400. But be sure to stick around because we're going to hit that 500 mark. And we're even going to get to a thousand episodes. I see it already in my mind. That's how this works, folks. You got to make a plan, you got to see it through set your goals really high and do your best to accomplish those goals and do not forget to learn from your mistakes always got to learn from your mistakes the biggest thing in life are the lessons that we learn you know time is our most valuable resource but i think the the mistakes we made are the best fuel to make the most of that time so Anyways, folks, big shout out to you for listening to this show. If you want to support the show, there are whole hundreds, blah, 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 there's so many thousands, hundreds of ways to support the show. You could give us thousands of dollars directly. Just send it to us, please. We need it. I need to fix my transmission. 
or just you know get a new car altogether who knows we'll see but i could really use the help here folks you've been very kind in the past few weeks a lot of you have sent very kind donations big shout out to micah for sending me a book in the mail that's always cool as well but yeah we could use all the support we can get and if you go to myfamilythinksomecrazy.com there are a bunch of links that'll show you all the places where you can support if you want to get something out of it of course you can go on rockfin you can go on patreon patreon's the place to get all the bonus content we just did an ask me anything episode last night where a couple of our friends and patron supporters jumped on and asked some questions that's going to be out tonight as i'm recording this on patreon as well as this episode i'm recording this a couple days before it's going to come out and i like to put the episodes out early on the patreon when i can and i promise i promise i will be more consistent with that i've just moved into a new place so things have been different i'm going to be getting a stronger ethernet connection and then once i have the ethernet connection plugged in and i'm not doing the mobile hotspot wi-fi crap we'll be live streaming every week and tara and i have a really cool plan to do a podcast together i'm excited about that and we also have another really awesome project in the works her and i are going to be researching for so more exciting news to come on all of those fronts but be sure to be on our patreon or our rockfin to see it all first that's the best place to get it live and of course telegram seems to be the best place to keep you up to date and in the know on everything that's going on with the my family thinks some crazy podcast instagram of course is where we promote the show you can see us there follow us on instagram stay up to date with the latest episodes big shout out to alt media united clips on instagram pumping out content promoting all of the amazing podcasts that i have united together on the alt media united podcast cooperative you can go to altmediaunited.com to check that out and real soon we're gonna have a group merch store that's right a group merch page on alt media united which will have all the links to everybody's individual merch stores so if you have a friend whose birthday is coming up or you want to get a t-shirt for the warmer weather coming up soon you could get it all right there you just jump to this merch store you can see all your favorite podcasts boom click the button you immediately go to their merch store and check out what they have to offer i have over 80 t-shirts on the my family thinks i'm crazy merch store a lot of good stuff there but enough about the show enough about me i hope you enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now oh and one more thing be sure to go and check out michael hoffman's book secret societies and psychological warfare it is a must-have for anyone interested in this field of research that's all folks have a great moment wherever you are in the now (laughs) 